This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount. Before I get to that, I want to highlight a couple of products. So footwear has been a big issue, and we all know that these heavy-duty work boots cause a lot of issues with joint health and fatigue. Listening to the responders in the field, the military in the field, 5.11 have reverse engineered and created some incredible footwear that is much more lightweight, just as durable, and minimizes both fatigue and damage to the joints. One of those is the Norris sneaker. I have a pair of those myself. They are incredible. And the other one is the AT trainer that has the Atlas system, which spreads the weight of the load over the entire foot, thus reducing fatigue and long-term damage. Aside from footwear, they have the backpacks. I have the AMP pack myself. They're civilian clothes, the jeans, the shorts. I absolutely live in these days. The flashlights are some of the brightest I've seen, and they last an incredibly long time on one charge. The list goes on and on. Now, because 5.11 cares about you, the tactical population, they are offering you a discount of 15% on every purchase that you make. So go to 5.11 Tactical, use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, and save 15% every time you shop. And if you want to learn even more about the company, listen to episode 338 with co-founder and CEO, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by GovX. And as you know, I only have companies on here that I truly use and believe in myself. And GovX is a complete no-brainer. If you are a member of fire, police, EMS, corrections, military, and even hospital setting doctors and nurses, you qualify for the free membership to GovX, which marries us with discounts from so many companies that you probably already use. And on top of that, it's not just for active duty, but also retirees, veterans, and volunteers. So for our professions, having to purchase so much of our equipment, every single dollar counts. And understanding that, GovX has reached out to you, the Behind the Shield podcast audience, to offer you an additional saving. On your first purchase of $50 or more, if you use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, they will give you an additional $15 off your first purchase. And another layer of GovX is GovX Gives Back. Every month, they're going to sell a different patch, and the proceeds from that patch goes to a charity that supports either first responders or military. So as I mentioned before, go to govx.com, G-O-V-X.com, register for your free membership, and save every single time you purchase. Welcome, guys, to episode 373 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and it is my absolute honor to welcome this week Mike Glover. Now, Mike is a veteran of the Green Berets. He has also worked with outside government agencies and is the man behind Fieldcraft Survival. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into the military, martial arts, drug prohibition, training standards, and so much more. Before we get to this interview, as I say, every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback and leave a rating. Each rating really does make us more visible to people looking for a project like this. And this is a free library for you, the audience, whether individually, whether organizationally. So all I ask in return is that you take these incredible men and women's stories and share them so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth that needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Mike Glover. Enjoy. Well, 
Mike, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time, and I know how busy you are at the moment, to uh, come on the Behind the Shield podcast. No, thanks for having me. It's, it's my pleasure. I'll do anything for, uh, for you. Thank you. Well, first question, where on planet Earth, roughly, you don't have to be specific, uh, are we finding you today? Um, I'm actually back home in Utah uh, in Heber City after being on the road in Montana for a few weeks, so it's actually good to be home. Beautiful. All right. Well, I'd like to start at the very beginning. So where were you born? And then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. So I was actually born on a military installation in California called Fort Ord, which is in uh, Monterey County and Sacramento County in Monterey, uh, California. Um, Had no siblings, was raised in a military family, uh, had a whole bunch of cousins and uh, extended family. But, uh, you know, I bounced around all over the place the first part of my life because of my dad's uh, service in the military, which was specifically the U.S. Army. Beautiful. All right. Well, I always ask people that were from a family that was kind of transient like that. What were the pros looking back now as as a man? What were the pros and cons you found as a child having to move around a lot? I, I think the adaptability is probably what comes to mind because, you know, when you're a child and you're building friendships and you're building community in your own little circles. And then you, you have to pick up and then start over. You start to learn how to adapt quickly um, where, you know, definitively you, your home isn't necessarily a, a brick structure. It's, it's wherever your heart's at. So uh, I found that being a military brat um, and moving around a lot afforded me this sense of adaptability, uh, especially at a young age. Beautiful. Did you miss the sense of community, though, because you were moving around? Yeah, it was difficult. I mean, I think any any child who gets pulled out of his little tribe that he develops or she develops um, becomes difficult. Um, so you, there is probably a detachment issues there or something that's a negative, right? But I think more positive comes from that experience. Brilliant. All right. Well, then what about um, athleticism? Were you a sportsman when you were a kid? Yeah, according to 23andMe, I have this gene <laughs> professional athletes have. So I, I was always athletic. I played every sport, baseball, football, basketball, um, Was could pick up pretty much any any martial art or any sport really relatively easy. Um, was always athletic, but wasn't super competitive. Um, I, 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 I'm, I'm competitive in life, but when it comes to sports, um, I don't know. I, I I'm not a big fan of sports, um, but I'm a big fan of being physical. Um, so yeah, I played I played pretty much everything. Beautiful. I, I can relate to that. Like I, I've been a martial artist most of my life, and again, I was never driven, as you hear some people, to be the better. Like Tim Kennedy's a perfect example. Like he wants to win everything that he does. He's been on the show several times now, but to me, it was more of a focus of being the best version of me, regardless of what anyone else was around. Was that kind of your philosophy too? Yeah. No, that's a good way to put it. That's exactly how I felt about it. I, I mean, I. Like I think maybe martial arts because those were the first kind of sports and athletics that I learned um, gave me a sense that like introspective sense of being disciplined but being humble, and so I I was never driven to just win a trophy trophy or win a ribbon. I was more driven just to be a like you said be a better version of myself. Beautiful. And which martial arts did you start with? Uh, the stereotypical Korean. Taekwondo martial <laughs> arts. Uh, at, b- big when I was a kid was karate and Taekwondo. 
Um, so I started in those. And then uh, as I got older, uh, I did ninjutsu. And then um, that started becoming what is now known as, you know, modern day Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Um, so I evolved into that. And then as I transitioned in the military, even as a young age of uh, 17, um, I picked up boxing. I pretty much did it all. I mean, there's I really enjoyed martial arts. So I did a whole bunch of different fighting sports um, and it, especially the camaraderie. So I, I pretty much did every one of them, uh, including Wing Chun Kung Fu, which I did for a period of time. Beautiful. Well, one thing I asked people, because I had the same journey. I did, uh, let me see, Taekwondo, the karate, Shotokan, then back to Taekwondo, and then boxing, Muay Thai, Jiu-Jitsu. And every single time I went, in my opinion, almost leveling up. I mean, you take stuff from each of these arts, but it, it was a complete humbling process because there I am with national titles in Taekwondo getting my ass handed to me by a boxer. So did you have that kind of humbling moment when you, oh, when you switched? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I started boxing when I was um, probably 17, 18 at a gym called MBS. And this gym taught young Golden Glove boxers. And... I remember the first time getting in the ring and it was kind of like a Muay Thai uh, boxing gym. And I was, a, uh, I was on the Muay Thai side and then I went into the, the ring with an actual boxer to you know, work my hands. And I remember getting pummeled by this young kid who, whose hands were super fast and I realized how much I, I was out of my league. But it, it drove me more to, to want to understand and learn um, you know, at least a, a hand sport like boxing and, and how to become faster. Um, but yeah, I, I've been humbled in so many different uh, means. Uh, one, one thing I didn't do, I only wrestled for a year. Uh, you know, going into MMA, I wish I would have wrestled more um, because of the core strength and even the discipline that you learned um, because it would have probably made me a more effective MMA guy, uh, especially in my special operations career. Absolutely. That's something that we don't really have in, in England. There's, there's not really a wrestling culture. I think there used to be a long time ago, but it, it disappeared. So I know in early UFC, a lot of the British fighters would struggle with the wrestling component. Yeah, wrestling is like catch wrestling and, and um, traditional Greco-Roman wrestling is super advantageous for, I think, young people to learn. Um, I just wish I had more exposure to it, just like you. Absolutely. Well, what about career-wise? Were you always dreaming of joining the military yourself? Yeah, I mean, I grew up in a military family, which just meant I was surrounded and immersed in it. I mean, um, my youngest memories are playing war or, or planning out raids, um, playing with toy guns with my cousins running around the backyard, uh, pretending like we're Rambo. So, it, you know, I, for me, it was a very easy transition to play your entire childhood uh, as a soldier and then become one. Uh, so for me, you know, even being in the military, it never felt like it was a job. I felt like I was just a big kid playing playing a game. Just like the fire service then. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, then obviously you didn't just join the army. You ended up, you know, in an elite uh, unit. So had you got your sights set on the Green Beret specifically when you entered? Yeah. You know, I, I always you – know, my dad um, and uncle – uh, dad being army and uncle being Navy always had this friendly competitive nature about what they wanted me to do. You know, my dad obviously wanted me to be a green beret. 
Um, he, he grew up in the army respecting Green Berets and looking up to them. Um, and my uncle wanted me to be a Navy SEAL. Um, he even tried out to become a Navy SEAL in the uh, 70s. Um, so I, that competitive nature drove me kind of down the path of the army, realizing that I wasn't just the, it wasn't that I wasn't a strong swimmer. I actually was a super strong swimmer, but I realized that if you failed the process to become a Navy SEAL, you became needs of the Navy. And there wasn't a lot of cool jobs in the Navy. I didn't want to be on a boat somewhere in the middle of the ocean, Um, as opposed to the army where you have more options where you could be an airborne ranger uh, and then if you tried out for Green Berets and you didn't make it, you, you still were an elite U.S. Army Ranger. So that, that path was pretty easy for me. And then what do you attribute now with, with your childhood, moving around, you know, being exposed to a lot of the combat arts? What were some of the tools mentally, excuse me, mentally and physically that allowed you to be successful with so many other people rang the bell? Uh, I think it's, you know, the, the biggest thing for me is um, – you know, when you get beat up and, you know, and you fall down, you, you know what that experience is like. And so um, I knew I was going to suffer. And I knew I was going to be in pain. And I kind of at a very young age understood the concept of uh, investing yourself into something. And so when other people I saw fail or quit did so, they did so because they didn't have an understanding of expectations. They, they mismanaged their own expectations. Um, I expected to suffer, to be part of something and to be part of that brotherhood. You had to suffer together. Um, so I embraced it and, and even nurtured it. I mean, for me, um, I kind of got a kick out of suffering and, and, and being in pain. Um, it, it, it was part of the journey. So for me, the entire journey and path, which was difficult for many, truly, just to be honest, it wasn't that difficult. I, I, at no point along the way did I realize that I think it was difficult. Um, and, and I looking back on it, even I, I think being a civilian is more difficult than being in the military. Did you do any specific uh, mental or physical prep prior to that? Yeah, I, I think the, the martial arts and the sports definitely taught me that if you want to be prepared, you have to put in the, the time and effort. So I trained my butt off, um, running and rucking, uh, and being a natural athlete. Um, I, you know, I can get away with more things than people who didn't have capabilities or abilities, but, um, I definitely did train and practice. Now looking back on it, especially for ranger school and even becoming a green beret, I probably did the wrong things in training because back then we didn't know, we didn't understand a lot about endurance, um, training and sports, um, or nutrition. I mean, if you were, if you were tired back then, you just drink water. If you were hungry, you drink water. If you felt weak, you drink water because for some reason that, that was the solution. Um, but we know that to not be true because you know, you're flushing electrolytes. You're you, in some, in a lot of ways you're diminishing your physical abilities. Um, but yeah, I did a whole bunch of preparation physically uh, on the mental side. I, I didn't really do a lot. I think in the same way that I offered the advice, if you want to get more mentally, um, resilient and build that fortitude, 
you, you just have to suffer physically and kind of extend your own mental capabilities by experiencing physical discomfort. And then you'll truly be able to kind of gauge and understand uh, what your limitations are. And I did a lot of that. Beautiful. Well, it's funny you mentioned about the, the nutrition because it's something I talk about a lot. Our generation, um, I almost feel like we have to unlearn a lot of the bullshit that we were taught. And I talk about this, you know, like the if you're a tactical athlete, the bodybuilding style training is probably not going to serve you that well. You're not moving weight over distance. You're not climbing. You're not dragging and pushing and a lot of these things that we have to do. Um, and then the nutrition side, you know, oh, you want to get ready for a race? We'll just eat a giant bowl of pasta and you'll be ready. And it's like, <laughs> we were told so many bad things that I think our generation almost has more of an uphill battle to unlearn all the bullshit and then relearn the way that it's actually supposed to be. Yeah, that's a, that's a huge problem. I mean, I, 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 for the first time in a, a special operations selection process, um, started researching what athletes use and was kind of taken back by the lack of knowledge, even on the Green Beret side of what you need to actually do to, you know, maintain glycogen stores, for example. Um, in the Army, you, you wake up in the morning and you do PT and you don't, I mean, you're, you're, you're basically fasted every morning that you do PT. And nobody knows why you're lean or nobody knows why you could operate in that kind of ketosis state. But we do it. And uh, a lot of people think that, you know, sucking it up and driving on are the ways to um, become harder. And, and there's some truth to that. But I think uh, being smarter and, and less hard is, is more what you should be focused on. Absolutely. I think less is more is, is becoming more and more of a philosophy, whether it's, you know, head trauma and sparring, whether it's, you know, rest and recovery, especially if you're an older athlete. And I think we're finally starting to get that after watching the the litter of broken bodies that were ahead of us. Yes, absolutely. That's that's definitely the truth. So as far as getting selected, one thing that I kind of want tangent on um, something that I see I've seen personally because I'm you know in the fire service is departments that I've worked for that set the bar incredibly high. And then for that one year probation that we have, you're literally shitting yourself that you're going to lose your job for 365 days. Um, you know, and so you end up forging this amazing department with men and women who, you know, are respected by the people that they work alongside now who've been through the crucible. And then, and then as they rise through the ranks, become great officers, you know, on the way up. And then conversely, I've had, I've had the opposite where I've worked for a department where there was no standard. And I, this is just my own personal anecdote, witnessed the, the polar opposite with people that I know wouldn't even enter a burning building if it came to that. Um, what have you observed with the selection process with the Green Berets and then the importance of maintaining that bar where it's set? Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a good observation. I mean, you know, esprit de corps, and selection processes and um, shared hardship, um, you know, shared value systems are all important in, in building organizations and units, um, and especially in capacities that um, depend on people's personal courage to fight through adversity to save lives. And that's 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 always been uh, an attribute of strong units because. Uh, you're asking these men and women to do something very extreme that's, I think, is primal, but not normal for um, for many reasons. And they, they have to go above and beyond. And, and that trust and that unity and that bond that's built by looking left and right starts in the very beginning. Um, 
I, I love the institutional um, protocols of special operations where everybody who serves in those units knows that they've been through specific uh, hardships. So, you know, I think a great example of that is Ranger Regiment that requires that everybody go to Ranger School, which is one of, one of the most difficult small unit tactics leadership schools, combat leadership schools in the, in the military. So I know that everybody in my left and right is, is, is um, at least meeting a baseline. Now, the difficult thing is to maintain those standards uh, and sustain them for a long or extended period of time. Um, because a lot of people who get a tab or who get the title feel that they're entitled because they've already been through the hard and difficult. Um, I created a mindset on my own detachment, uh, for example, that um, you are constantly being assessed. And I, I, I think that is the way um, special operations specifically to specific elite units uh, how they maintain um, the sharp edge constantly, which is you're never safe. You're always being evaluated and you could lose your job at any point, especially if you drop your own personal standards. And that that culture is kind of a it's kind of a scary and intimidating and an anxious culture to live in. Uh, I've lived in that, but it does drive um, this this new standard, which I think is important, especially in these these dangerous jobs. Yeah, well, there's something I've seen in in fire personally, and obviously in law enforcement as well, where there's a real um, opposition to even an annual fitness test to be held by that standard. And and to me, yeah, and you should be <laughs> you should be laughing because it drives me fucking crazy too. But, you know, when we're asked to do so much to walk through the front door, like you said, and in the fire service, we call our certification minimum standards. I mean, it can't be more clearly labeled if you tried. So that's telling you, you know, this is this is the bare minimum and now you need to keep improving it. But then it's very much like you got your piece of paper, you walk through a door. All right, well, that's the fittest I'm, I'm ever going to be, which is complete bullshit. And I love the... You know, the, the kind of ethos from all the people in special operations, special forces that have come on here, which is in your community, you're held to that standard. And it doesn't have to be an insanely high standard in police or fire, but to remove that standard completely is a, is to me is an invitation for the individual to start spiraling downhill and also for the administration, the people they work for to neglect the fact you have to create an environment for the men and women to thrive as well. Yeah, I, I think institutions inherently, because of the the nature in which they operate, um, you know, being bureaucracies, are are really vulnerable to that kind of, um, you know, the, those kind of flaws. But I think what's more important is small units that have informal leaders who aren't specifically put in in charge. Um, can drive one one good informal leader can drive an entire team to become the best version of themselves without a doctrine or a protocol being written on a piece of a piece of paper and those are the most impactful because it's like yeah you have a minimum standard but then you have an informal leader who drives everybody to be the best version of themselves um, or a good leader internal to that organization and yeah maybe it's not doctrinal maybe it's not um something that can get you potentially legally fired but if we create our own standard um internal 
you know, we're all going to be better off for it. I think outside of doctrine, there, that's how the best units I've seen operate is, is good informal and good formal leaders internally. Beautiful. Yeah. And I agree hundred percent. There shouldn't even be a need for a standard to be written. It should be intrinsic. Yeah, absolutely agree. Right. Well then please correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I understand, be not being, you know, of a military background, the ranger element is, is, you know, becoming a, a, a highly effective soldier. The green beret is more now being a, fo- a force multiplier and training Oh, not militia is the right word, but you know, training forces that you're aligning with to to basically fight within their own country. So, firstly, a make please correct me if I'm wrong with that, and b if that's the case, how how does that Green Beret training shift them where you're actually influencing these men and women from completely different cultures and empowering them to start defending themselves? Yeah, no. So you're. Um it's exactly right. I mean, it's, that's, that's, that's the, there's, a, there's some major differences there, but that's, that's a good sum up. Um, the difficult thing for a green beret is we operate in very small units and very small teams and sometimes by ourselves. Um, but we also can affect diplomacy on the battlefield, um, much more drastically than a conventional type soldier in a conventional type unit. So you, you might be talking, and I've done this, uh, you might be talking to a warlord or commander of a province, and you might be just simply drinking chai or tea with them. And what you say um, could determine diplomacy and how the strategy is, is, is determined on the battlefield for, for both U.S. and coalition forces. So... You could be a young staff sergeant, meaning, you know, less than eight years in the military and literally what you're doing in, in a meeting and what you're saying could drive, you know, strategic and tactical um, decision making for uh, for periods of time during the war. And that's super um, important that one, we have the flexibility to do that and that, that we have trained warriors on the battlefield that are able to bridge those relationships because that's how wars are won. Uh, you know, you, conventional forces going in and, and killing each other on the battlefield, like the civil war, those days are over with. We're, we're not using a lot of conventional tactics in that sense. So, um, I, I think the green beret, um, is a force multiplier, um, but there's so many more facets of their job that are important and and changing and shaping strategic um, uh, battlefields all, all across the world. I mean, Green Berets are in every major region in the entire globe, and 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 that's something um, that's not talked about often, but probably good for good reason. Yeah. Now, I heard you talking with Andy, and this was a really interesting perspective because again from a person outside the military looking in you know sadly a lot of the stuff that we get is from television you know it's even when i was little the falklands war in in the the uk and then moving forward um but i was truly amazed that your perspective on using sf in a more focused component would be more effective than maybe some of the tactics now so if you were you know king for a day how would you change the tactics to try and you know 
minimize the loss in the conflicts that we're in at the moment? Yeah, I think the, the biggest issue that I've seen is um, we're, we're too grossly invested uh, in treasure and personnel um, and, and too far thin stretched, right? I, I think the key to winning, uh, you know, the, the, the biggest strategy is reducing or mitigating the chance of terrorist attacks uh, abroad and in the United States. So the idea would be to completely um, saturate ourselves all over the globe. Well, Joint Special Operations Command and Special Operations Command does that routinely. I think it's too large of a signature, and I think we're not leveraging our Green Berets enough. Um, we, we need to, to have liaison-type relationships with these countries um, and do less kicking in doors and more building relationships, training host nation forces, and then doing strategic partnering. Those small teams and small countries, um, the, the biggest benefit of, of the return of, of investment on Green Berets is they can get the job done with not a lot. And you know, you don't ever want to operate with not a lot, but when you send these, these men into harm's way, um, they can make a lot happen with, with minimal. Um, and that's important because I think we're too far stretched I think we have too many soldiers and sailors and Marines and airmen all over the, the world, and it's unnecessary. Um, I just think we need to focus on the hot spots in the small teams that we, we have that are truly capable. And, and I think that's a, a recipe for success. Yeah. And, and, and it seems to make perfect sense to me because there's no question that the more presence that we have in a country, there is a potential for turning what might be an ally into, into an enemy. Yeah, that, that, I mean, we're, you know, the World War II was 41 to 45, Korea was 50 to 53, and we're still occupying the, the, both of those places. Now, there is a mitigation, um, uh, you know, of risk because of the force that's, that's shown and demonstrated, but a lot of these places we don't need to be. I mean, we're in Italy, we're in Germany. I mean, if we took those resources, that treasure, we brought it home, focused on a lot of domestic issues, and then even force enabled these operators to go out and to do their jobs in small teams, we, we'd be better served for it. Absolutely. Well, speaking of, um, you know, the, the army specifically, I had Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman on a couple of times and listening to you and Andy discussing killing, you know, which is obviously the goal of, you know, one of the goals of being a soldier. Um, I thought the psychology was fascinating here. You know, you two align and, and talk about the, the highs and the lows of that t particular position. Um, I got a couple of questions. Firstly, if, if you're familiar with Grossman's work, did you did you find um, a lot of what he writes about true on the battlefield when you first started interacting? Yeah, I think, you know, it's tough. Grossman's a, a tough one because, you know, he, he writes on killing and on combat and he does a lot of a lot of its theoretical studies, which means they're not conclusive about people's perceptions of, of combat and the, the inherent flaw I see in in that kind of study, I don't think it's a Grossman flaw, I think it's just a studied flaw, is that they're not talking to guys like me and Andy or interviewing people like from the Office of Strategic Services who, you know, were deliberately behind enemy lines, training auxiliary forces, 
kill him, killing enemy personnel routinely. Or, you know, men from Vietnam who were members of MACV SOG, which included the studies and observation group of Navy SEALs and Green Berets and, and force recon guys that were going out doing deliberate, um, you know, counterterrorism operations and reconnaissance operations, killing the enemy. Um, you know, the, the, the biggest flaw is this idea that a lot of the men who served in these wars were intentionally missing because they didn't want to hurt the other side. Now, there's probably truth to that, especially when it comes to conventional forces. But um, special operations is a different breed. I mean, each each trickle down selective filtered process is going to get the right man um, into a position to to do, um, I guess, some of the dirtiest and deadliest jobs that nobody else wants to do. But those are very specific. They're very surgical and they're very real. Um so, yeah, some of the stuff I, I'm, I'm into, and, I, and I've read those books. Hell, I read those books when I was in the infantry as a young private. But after experiencing war and being with a breed uh, of a warrior class that specifically goes into harm's way to meet the enemy face on, um, I, I didn't experience that. I didn't experience a lot of those things. Right. And then what about the, the impact of the proximity of the kill? Because I know that's another thing that he writes about. Yeah, there's definitely some psychology to that. Um, but again, too, there, there, there's a lot of like, I mean, we go out every night and kill bad guys every single night. I mean, if we weren't shooting and killing bad guys every night, we would look at ourselves and at the unit um, and even at our service and, and go, what are we doing here? Like, why are we wasting time spinning wheels if we're not killing bad guys? Meaning it was part of our routine. And it became, we, you know, we're part of a machine that is joint special operations or task force. And we're just crushing bad guys every single uh, day. So the, the point in which you analyze that as an individual looking through a scope or looking through your optic, you didn't have enough time to assess or to deal with that kind of stuff. So even, even in that, that's kind of like a Cold War Vietnam uh, and it's only specific to very specific people, but it does. It's not very applicable in the global war on terror, and especially in special operations. It's just a different. It's just a different paradigm. Um, I think it's generational, and I think it's it has to do with the given tactics of each generation. Uh, maybe it's due time for another version of it. Interviewing maybe guys like me or Andy who who have operated like that. Absolutely. Well, I think you know the 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 division between general forces and special operations would be a, a different tier in itself too. I can see that you know the the frequency of combat and killing that you have versus you know someone in a regular infantry is probably a completely different magnification. Yeah, I I, I would agree in that, and and maybe the 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 problem is the education i mean uh, yeah, i heard people talk about the podcast that me and andy did where we talked about killing bad guys and it was mostly positively received because people were said they hadn't heard that version ever before um and and i, I remember when i came on social media five years ago for the first time and started talking about actually being in combat people were kind of shocked because they're like well you just sound like you're a warmonger and I was like, well, that's what I get paid to do is fight wars and kill bad guys. Like, 
that's everybody that I'm associated with. So is I, am I missing something here? And, and what I realized is societal-wise, there's a big gap in the understanding of what war is for some people because it's not an equal opportunist experience. So my experience in war, which was very good, um, even though I lost comrades and killed a bunch of bad guys and experienced a lot of trauma, I look at that as a positive thing. And other guys um, who, who get talked to by civilians and they say, I'm so sorry about your experience. It's like, uh, why are you sorry? Because like, I love doing that. And, and other people are victims now because they, they, they like the victimhood mentality where they're like, oh, my God, I suffered so much. Like, well, that's what you technically signed up to do. But, OK, maybe there's just different breeds here. Yeah, no, I agree completely. And the fire service, I think, is similar. Not, I'm not obviously in a combat side, but, you know, we always say we don't want it to happen to anyone. But if it is going to happen, we want to be there. That's the aggressive firefighter mentality, I think. So, you know, a house fire is someone's tragedy, but it is. It's a, it's a, it's a flow state for us, you know, which is a form of elation, really. So, um, well, speaking of, you know, the events out there, I think another thing being detached from the military, being a civilian, um, and I, and I asked pretty much everyone that, that has served on here, we get kind of told one of two extremes, which seems to be the the thing that people love to do these days is paint a black and white picture. But you either get, like you said, the baby killer version or you get the Rambo version. And obviously the common sense lays in between. And a common denominator that I seem to hear is is there was a kind of moment when these men and women were first deployed where they saw with their own eyes some sort of atrocity. Um, and that, not that there was any question of justification, but that framed it in a different way. They, were, they actually saw now, okay, these are some horrible people that need to be taken off the earth. So did you have any kind of moments like that when you first deployed? Yeah, you know, I I think literally I think it boils down to a couple things. I think it, one is aptitude. Um, if, you, if you don't have the aptitude to kind of um, wrap your head around emotionally and, and intelligibly, the that war is hell that war is trauma that you're going to experience a, a segment of life that many people don't get to experience then you mismanage your own expectations you know getting back to the beginning of the conversation and i i, I think that inherently is a problem um institutionally in the military but also with uh lack of leadership or lack of uh, guidance and and mentorship I knew what I was getting into, and so did the men that I served with. And I did have moments of anxiousness knowing um, or questioning knowing if I had what it took to take a human life. Like, Mike, you've trained for war. You've you shot paper targets. You've shot steel targets. You've practiced doing this. Do you really have what it takes? And that, that up into the point into where I realized that I do have what it takes was, was anxious for me. But I never like I saw a lot of bad things in war, but I also had a had a very different perspective on what I wanted to get out of that. And so when I saw these atrocities or these, you know, these massive um, influxes of trauma and violence, I expected that. And, and I, I think that aptitude, um, that ex- that leadership, that mentorship, that maybe that preparation is what gets you lined out uh, to have a good or bad experience. Experience, and unfortunately, the 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 truth is, 
the overwhelming majority of people aren't going to have a good experience because they're not specifically in the right organizations. Um, maybe, maybe it's because they, they didn't get into special operations. Uh, I I've seen in, inherently m- more conventional units with conventional thinking mismanage those expectation and destroy people's lives where, you know, these people have these traumatic issues or these traumatic experiences when it could have been probably mitigated with just a conversation. Absolutely. Well, I know in the conversation with Andy, you mentioned quite a few times about mental hygiene. So what were some of the tools that you used to, you know, offload and, and kind of empty your cup so you were good to go? Ooh, I don't know if that was something I did. I think naturally because of the cycle of war, I mean, I deployed every year to war since I joined special operations. I mean, I did nine combat rotations in a row every single year. So it was a train up. It was a rehearsal, a practice, you know, a sniper school, a JTAC school, and then cycling back into war. Um, and so I didn't have a lot of time to do anything besides suppress everything I dealt with and then get back to work, which I think is in its, in it, in its own way way is a way of dealing with stuff. Um, but I don't, I, I mean, I, I don't have all these significant hangups w- with war. Now, when you're exposed to that much trauma conditionally, because that's what you're trained to do, then yeah, there's going to be psychological and physiological issues. Um, but that's just natural. I mean, that's anything that you cycle into that is different than the norm uh, that has to do with trauma. Um, I, I, I was, a, you know, I've always been a big endurance athlete, like even at, at, at 225 pounds, I could run with a ruck or run with a, with body armor for days. I mean, so that's what I typically like to do in a different setting. So I put on body armor, you know, I, I'd, I'd go running uh, on a trail in the middle of nature and intermingle with civilians where they're like, who the hell is this dude? Um, but that that helped me get through a lot of it. I also liked fast motorcycles, um, fast sports cars. So I had a whole bunch of cool cars and cool bikes. Um, but besides that, man, I didn't I didn't have a lot. Right now, when um when you were overseas, you know, I had a conversation with with a couple of people now. Um, you I know you had like a, a counterterrorism role. Um, one of the the. We're talking about government overreach. One of the things that I think has contributed to so many issues back here and in overseas as well um, stems from drug prohibition. This is just my personal opinion, but but looking at how that was founded on you know on basically on a bed of racism, and how the the quote unquote war on drugs seems to be an epic failure, and now how it appears how that's even funding some of the terrorism. Totally not loading the question. From your perspective, what's your view on the war on drugs, drug prohibition, and, and if there is a relationship, if that's funding some of the things that we're fighting at the moment? Oh, yeah. Drugs. I mean, this is my counterterrorism experience working all over the world. Um, drugs right now is the number one um, enabler and facilitator for terrorism across the world. I mean, it, it is what is funding uh, that terrorism. I mean, poppy uh, in, in Afghanistan, for example, or heroin out of Afghanistan is insanity. It always has been. I mean, I work with the DEA in Afghanistan doing counterterrorism operations because there's always a tie-in. 
when you're when you're making you know hundreds of millions of dollars and 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 billions of dollars in some senses um that money is going to be used mostly for uh, terrorist operations um I, I did a vehicle interdiction once in afghanistan where we killed a couple guys in the middle of the desert and uh, they came out of a country which i won't mention um but as they came through the borders and we interdicted them, um, we thought they were terrorists and they turned out to be drug runners. Um, and they were, <laughs> they were running a whole, uh, network, um, and including a whole vehicle full of, of heroin. So it's a world problem. It's a global problem. Um, I happen to believe that, you know, a lot of the issues that we have right now happen to do with the like you said, the disproportionate um, use of law enforcement and the justice system and uh, the list goes on of countering something um, that we've made illegal that's destroying people's lives like marijuana. I mean, I mean, if you go to prison for the rest of your life for marijuana, we have a we have a serious government institutional justice issue <laughs> like that there's no reason people should be going to prison for smoking weed from a plant uh, for the rest of their lives especially um yeah there's there's a whole bunch of issues with with drugs and the way that it's uh the way that we operate in america specifically with drugs but that's also a global issue i mean the real pandemic is 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 drugs and our across the globe that's that that's seen in every single country in every single region yeah and i've had such an interesting lens the last few years i, I was initially exposed to this whole concept my my mom and my brother moved to portugal from england uh, about 20 years now and just in passing a few years ago when i first started the podcast she said hey did you know they made all well they made addiction illy uh, excuse me addiction legal in portugal and I was like, no. And the history was the Portuguese soldiers were out in one of the African countries um, in a civil war there. And when they came back, there they, was this growing opiate issue that the soldiers brought back and then grew into the whole country. And so the beginning of the year 2000, they were the worst when it came to addiction in the whole of Europe. And so they incredibly progressively with with, you know, with voting decided to decriminalize addicts so you know smugglers still got arrested dealers still got arrested but if you're an addict they looked at it as a mental health issue you were a patient you weren't a criminal and within less than 10 years they went from the highest to the lowest addiction rate in europe and their you know their police officers were freed up their court system was freed up and when you look at it from a very layman's term if you take away demand then you affect supply the most basic economics so to me you know, we the the U.S. Um, caused uh, drug prohibition. Then it was kind of forced on a lot of the other countries after that politically. So if we took away the users, and the U.S. is a huge user of illicit drugs, then my very basal, you know, thinking means that that's going to impact the the Mexican border. It's going to impact the crime we're seeing on our streets here in the U.S., and it's going to impact terrorism as well. Yeah, I I, I, saw, I saw that actual study. Um, and, and I agree with it. I mean, you, you can't when somebody gets arrested and put in prison for drugs or, you know, they get arrested and get and then get a charge or a fine, whatever it may be, that more grossly affects their life and they don't get the help that's needed. 
that's only compounding the issue and making it worse because addiction is a real issue. I mean, um, addiction, addictions are, are what are killing a lot of people and what are destroying a lot of people's lives, including their family lives in prison and fines and detention is not going to fix that. Uh, it's only going to compound it, and make it worse. So I, I, one, I think how the fact in the 21st century, we have it, um, legalized marijuana federally, for example, is insanity. I mean, I, I feel like we're, we're living in med- medieval times right now. Um, and, and if you look at the socioeconomic issues that this country is facing, especially around major populated metropolitan areas, it, it looks like a cancer and it's symptomatic of cancer where you have so many people stacked on top of each other. You have so many uh, addicted um, you have so many coming in and out of the justice system. You have so many people who are disaffected uh, socially, um, economically, and it looks like what it looks like right now, which is chaos. Um, and I, I think you're spot on to fix that uh, requires a lot of progressive reform uh, and thinking outside the box, which I don't think we're, we're, we're used to doing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I don't, I don't mean this to be a snide remark, but, you know, protests aren't working. Hashtags aren't working. You know, I mean, we have to reverse engineer the issue and we have to fund the poorer areas, you know, and we have to f- address the fact that our prisons are just swelling at a, you know, inordinate amount and that our police officers are being murdered on the streets and, you know, and they're making those mistakes. I think some of them because of the hiring practice, some of them are just overworked and understaffed. But these are all symptoms of, you know, a much deeper problem, which people say, oh, it's a complex issue. I don't think it is because we were there before, you know, we started saying they're illegal and we, we abolished alcohol prohibition. So why can we not do the same thing with drugs? Yeah, I, I agree. I, a lot of people say it's a, a, a big issue to deal with, but a lot of it's just if you use common sense and cause and effect, I mean, it's... It, it, it's really easy to determine how much you're destroying a person's life when you put them in prison, disconnected from their family, um, if they had a family, but breaking further down the family unit over uh, a plant um, or you know marijuana or even a heavier drug uh, and not getting them rehabilitated. So we have these systems that are operating independently we don't, we, we don't, we aren't doing a lot of talking. The right hand's not talking to the left hand. And so I think, you know, like you said, it, it takes reform. It takes really, it takes very progressive leadership. It takes somebody who's willing to step forward and, and shake the tree. Um, but really all we have is the simple same. Um, it, it just, it's, it's kind of scary. I just hope that local leaders uh, outside of the federal government, We'll, we'll think outside the box and then make these decisions and maybe be a shining example for the rest of the nation to, to fall into. Yeah, I hope so too. Well, what's really sad, um, the, the kind of piecemeal, like we do have, you know, marijuana in some, um, states is legal now. And Ed Calderon was on talking about how that was just changing, um, you know, the market from, let's say, marijuana to fentanyl or, you know, opium or whatever it is. So I think just, just legalizing one isn't working either, but. What's really sad is I've had several uh, Navy SEALs on here now who had to go to Mexico 
to get psilocybin treatment that worked incredibly well for their particular, you know, PTSD. So we have men and women that are prepared to die for this country that can't even get the treatment that's going to help them, which is again from a plant. Um, because of, of these laws. So we're driving our service people overseas just to get treatment for their service, which I think is insane. Yeah. I've, I've, I've actually been offered that's a similar psilocybin and uh, DMT uh, kind of experience to be part of case studies and, and, and look at this stuff. And I think that's detrimental. Um, I mean, mental health. I mean, I mean, if you look at weed, for example, I mean, like I'm a big fan of weed. Um, and I've said that openly and I'm not afraid to say it. And I mean, I, I would love for a DEA agent to kick in my door because that would not go down. Well. <laughs> uh, I, I, I advocate for that because the alternative is chemical compounds that are issued by reckless doctors in a veteran affairs system that is broken. And so let me give a veteran who has post-traumatic stress who has a myriad of issues, Ambien stacked on top of Trazodone, uh, you know, a psych, a, a, a psych drug, which I've been given. And that is a recipe for, for disaster, which it was for me. Luckily, uh, I got out of that circumstance and realized somebody opened my eyes uh, to, you know, can- cannabis and cannabinoid receptors and the understanding of how, how CBD, for example, works in the system. And I found alternative medicine to be the best approach. And if it's worked for me, then how many other people can it work for? But they, they're too afraid to try it. I mean, the fact that first responders can't even use hemp-derived, no THC CBD is insanity. Um, and, and we're still arguing over this. We're still debating it. It's like, what's debatable? Like, you have people who are trying to take care of themselves in the absence of you know, and I guess the influx of pharmaceutical companies trying to destroy people's lives in the names of profit, but we are illegalizing basic CBD that's going to benefit somebody who deals with stress and anxiety as part of their living, as part of something they do every single day. Uh, I, I think the whole thing is a travesty. Yeah. Well, you mentioned CBD. I take it. Um, and I take a non-THC one. Um, I had a, the... Uh, a pain doctor from LA, Dr. Gregory Smith, who has uh, Red Pill Medical, and they have this, you know, third-party tested zero THC um, CBD. And I even went through a hiring process. It was a volunteer one, but I did the the drug test and and you know did a little testify, testifying like, hey, okay, I pissed. I didn't part, you know, I didn't fail. We're good with this one. You know, it's not going to show up. But yeah, some of these agencies are like, you are not allowed to take CBD, which is the most ridiculous thing. It's basically like saying you're not allowed to breathe. It's a it's a, a system within your body that you're just bolstering. It's so crazy, man. I I I don't understand it. And like the military right now, the Defense Department. I mean, you there you can't take CBD. You can't take uh, 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 cannabis. But they'll give you a bottle of Ambien. Or they'll give you a bottle of narcotics. Uh, it's just asinine. I mean, I can't even. When I was on active duty, and uh, man, I, I think I probably have been given hundreds of pills of of, of Percocet of 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 opiates, uh, which I mean, it's science that are proven to be some of the most destructive drugs on the planet. But somebody looking at CBD 
uh, even the FDA looking at it, it, it's, it's this big problem. It's like they can't get the studies passed through. They can't get the legislation passed through. And I, I don't get it, man. I just don't understand it. And a lot of it has to do with, with things that we don't understand, um, including, you know, a trillion dollar pharmaceutical industry, lobbyists, political affiliations, the list goes on. Um, but that's problematic. That's, that's why I'm a big believer in saying, you know, fuck the system. Let's do this shit for us. Like when people are like, oh, Mike, you can't work with firearms and, 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 and be around weed. I'm like, uh, who gives a fuck? Are you like, do you think the DEA is monitoring my fucking phone to, to see if Mike's smoking a joint at night to go to sleep? Like I'm not a criminal, so more likely they're not worried about me. Um, so I'm going to continue to live my life and do what I do um, and, and be a private citizen uh, abiding by the law. But I will do what I have to do to make sure that my health and my wellness is taken care of. Uh, and I encourage everybody to do the same. Absolutely. It's much safer to use fentanyl on a gun range. Oh, yeah. I know, right? It's, <laughs> it's, it, it's to be hopped up on Percocet, which I, I was routinely uh, with, with chronic back pain in the military. It's like so I could do uh, uh, CBD, which has no uh, physiological uh, effects that I, that I could feel that disrupt it's not a psychedelic. It's not going to disrupt my psyche, um, but it's okay to take a narcotic and to operate. That's yeah, that's not going to happen. Nah. Well, speaking of, of holistic practices, um, you know, you mentioned about being prescribed pain pills. Did you sustain any injuries during um, you know your your service? And if so, did you find any good holistic practices that work for you? Yeah, you know, I've had my hamstring ripped off the bone. I've had I've been hit in the face with shrapnel. I've, I've been. I've been knocked unconscious in free fall accidents. I've had a myriad of injuries in my line of work. Um, I, I think some of the best things that have helped me um, have been from plants, um, medicinal plants that have um, kind of opened my eyes to, to, to different things. Like, I, like microdosing uh, psilocybin, for example. Um, microdosing psilocybin has been shown to improve cognitive function and people who suffer from TBI. Man, I, I've been blown up. Like a lot of people go, well, Mike, you have, you know, you haven't had specific instances of being blown up. Well, that's true. Meaning I haven't been in a catastrophic IED. That's the, like, that's uh, uh, handicapped me, but I've been in a hundred different concussive blasts, including my own breaches I mean, in 2006, I breached every single night with explosive charges where I would eat concussive blast before entering a, a house or a building to clear it uh, of terrorists um, and for my own charges. And so, you know, we are routinely diagnosed with TBI. And, you know, I have the MRIs and the CAT scans and everything else to prove that. Um, but there's not a lot of help in the VA system to help people with t TBI. Uh, like I tried to go to, to uh, veteran affairs and get some form. I didn't want um, Adderall. I wanted um, the uh, uh, pro vigil because uh, buddies of mine who have, you know, they're members of other VA systems um, because they're all decentralized. They operate, they don't talk to each other. Um, they got uh, prescribed pro vigil and it helped them with cognitive function. In, instead of in, instead of getting like a clouded mind, well, I don't have that option because the VA system that I'm part of 
won't allow me to do that. So now I'm like, what is my options here? You have no options. You can, you can go into a VA hospital and take cognitive tests with a VA counselor or a, a cognitive therapist. And, and that's not going to help me. I, I need literally something that's going to help me. Well, microdosing psilocybin helps me. So if I want more blood flow, uh, more cognitive function, that's what I'm doing. And, and you know, again, uh, that, that's not it's, – it's faux pas because it's illegal and it's, it's, it's a big no-no in some circles. I don't care about the circles. I run my own circle. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned TBI, and that's something I've I've had come up over and over again. Um, I had Doc Parsley on, who's the Navy SEAL, that really, to me, really opened my eyes on sleep deprivation. So you have the TBI element, and then, like you said, not just the concussion from from charges, but also from your training. You know, like you're smacking each other in the head a lot too. So you know that's another element. But then you have the sleep deprivation, and both of those demyelinate. I think that's the right word. Take the myelin sheath off the, the nerve. Um, so you get that compounding double effect. And if from what I understand, psilocybin is the only compound they've shown so far that can actually repair that damage. Yeah, yeah. It, the way I'm aware of it, it uh, in, in relationship to, to trauma is that, you know, when you create that, that memory as well via that, that sheath, um, psilocybin renavigates and re-networks those, that, that infrastructure, which also allows you to not be predisposed to the systems that put you into anxious states um, in fight or flight. So, you know, there, there's a whole bunch of good studies and good science, but the proof's in the pudding. I take that shit and it works and, and I recommend it. And, and for people who have problems with that, they don't experience that. They don't run into roadblocks or have to live with it uh, and deal with it every single day of their lives, which is destroying their personal relationships. I mean, my, I mean I'm not going to blame crazy ex-girlfriends on, on trauma, um, but I've had personal relationships destroyed because of my inabilities to understand what was happening to my brain and then having no protocol or no medicinal means to, to address that. Um, and finding that, I mean, finding psilocybin for me and finding cannabis for me and finding CBD for me was a, a, uh, you know, finding a new chapter of my life because now I could actually function and just live a, a high functioning life like I used to when I was in special operations and, and really healthy. Beautiful. Well, it, we have a mutual friend in, uh, Mike Tack and he actually is uh, in charge of one of the, the um, organizations here in town now that's taking veterans in, whether they're they're actual veterans or whether they're active duty, but it's a it's a mental health facility. But they didn't even have much of a, an exercise program, so we're actually working with them, the gym that I coach at sometimes, to 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 train these men and women while they're in there and get and get that physical release too. But I hope that relationship maybe can can help open some eyes in that organization. I know, I know you're talking about the entire military, but I think every, every one of us that's, that's kind of chipping away with a rock hammer, you know, eventually there's going to be a critical mass. Yeah. I, I love hearing stories like that with Mike uh, and you working together and you, know, you take a, a intelligent green beret who is managing hospitals. Um, that's to me is a recipe for success. Cause like guys in special operations who think outside the box and aren't, you know, aren't going to just accept um, the simple same old routines as, 
as the solution. They're going to adapt. They're going to think unconventionally. That's how we're going to evolve. That's that's the progressive um, outside the box thinkers that we need in those kind of roles and leadership um, that can change you know the way that we think. Beautiful. Well, speaking of uh, progressive leadership, another thing I want to get to um, is law enforcement. So Tim came to town, to, to my town here in Ocala. We shoot dog response a couple of years ago, and I took the class, the civilian side class with him. It was right after the Parkland shooting, so they had a lot of sponsored spots. Um, and, you know, we, the second interview we did, he was frustrated because a lot of the law enforcement weren't fully attended. And it was, you know, these, these spots were completely sponsored. Um, there are very great agencies that have very fired up men and women and or leadership. And obviously there are some agencies that, that don't have that. So with you, with, uh, Fieldcraft Survival doing the, the weapons side, what have you seen as far as, um, the good things and the bad things kind of nationally in law enforcement? And what, what do you think collectively they could do better? Wow. Yeah. That, that's a really good question. Um, look, I think every organization, especially in, in first response that are responsible for saving people's lives can always do something better. Um, I, I hate the stereotypical vague blanketing of demonizing uh, the men and women and, and first responders. I, I think that's problematic. I think it's, I think it truly is systemic. Um, but I, I don't think that, for example, racism or um, uh, law enforcement officers killing black people, it, I think those are narratives that have been pushed and they have been um, manipulated and messaging all for the sake of driving other organizations' agendas. What I think law enforcement officers could do better um, is, is train on their own time. I mean, in special operations, I, I got the opportunity to train, and I still trained on my own time. I shot competitive um, pistol comps every single weekend because I wanted to be a better operator in special operations. I didn't stop training physically because I was off. I trained every single day because my life depended on my physical preparedness to save my life and that of my teammates. So I, I think inherently, culturally, um, we need to have better organizations in first response and law enforcement. And that starts with leadership. I mean, I will tell you, because I, I, speaking from experience and teaching law enforcement across the nation, there are some weak-ass leaders in law enforcement right now. We have some weak-ass chiefs of police, uh, weak sheriffs, um, and, and weak police officers um, all the way down to the supervisors on the streets that aren't doing their jobs. Um, if you have a bad police officer or bad first responder in your organization, you should be doing everything necessary to end that person's career because they are no, not only a liability um, to each other and to other law enforcement officers, but to the community that they are um, supposed to protect. And that's, that's a part of the problem now that we have is this lack of accountability because we have these unions protecting these scumbag officers who don't deserve to wear the uniform and the badge. And I've seen them. Like, it's not, to me, it's not systemic. I haven't seen a, a huge problem with it, but I have seen, oh, look, I've experienced law enforcement officers who 
have pulled me over who are pieces of shit. And I'm willing to call that out because I know the difference between a good human being and a bad human being. When you're talking down to a civilian, you think you could talk down to a civilian because you're wearing a uniform and they're not. Uh, and you have the power and they don't. That's problematic. I don't like that. I hate more so than uh, uh, more so than uh, anything. I hate people who abuse their powers. So we need accountability. But we also need to take care of the good law enforcement officers that we have um, that are doing their job every single day. I mean, again, this this uh, Philadelphia thing where you have a 27 year old man who's gunned down by police officers doing their job. I'm sorry. When you show up on the scene of a domestic and a guy's running around with a butcher knife chasing you while you're telling them to drop the knife, they are going to get gunned down in the streets in front of their mom like this guy did. I'm sorry. That just happens because you're threatening not only the police officer's lives, but you're threatening innocent lives in that inner city neighborhood. And can you imagine what would have happened if a, uh, a child ran around the corner and, and that man stabbed that child in the chest and then the law enforcement officer shot the man after the fact, they would be called murderers because they didn't do something about it in time. And that's problematic. So now, and now we have riots. Now we have violent protests. Now we have the demonizing of the police officers. Now we have the mayor and the governor coming out saying, this isn't right. This is, isn't what should have happened. Yeah, what should have happened is that person should have complied with law enforcement officers. That, that should, that's what should have happened. But it's not what happened. Because, you know, in life, there's evil people who do evil things to good people. And, and, and fortunately for us, we have law enforcement officers who are doing the right thing 99% of the time who are putting their lives in danger every single day trying to protect innocent lives. Uh, it, it, is, it is a comprehensive issue, but it's an issue that needs to be looked at comprehensively. I mean, we need to sit down with community leaders, with law enforcement, with first responders and talk about these issues and figure out the right path. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I asked the, the bar question, setting the bar high. Firstly, you know, how do you get rid of shit bags in the fire service and the police service is you don't let them in the front door in the first place. You create a crucible that, you know, you have to really want to be there to show up. Conversely, the theory that you're a racist and you're going to go through police academy and an orientation process on the off chance that you might get to kill a black person is fucking insanity too. Just join the clan if you're that kind of shitbag. You know, but so if you're going to give these men and women responsibility where they protect and or take a life, they have to be given an environment to thrive. They have to be given the training and they have to be, I think, you know, mandated training too and physical annual physical standards and all these things. But, you know, you see these agencies that are understaffed. They're, you know, they're sleep deprived. So they're riding one to a car. And in, in my opinion, again, as a layman, I'm not law enforcement, I'm a fireman. It seems to be setting them up for, for failure. So we reverse engineer, like you said, you increase training standards, you increase training opportunities, you, you raise hiring standards, you keep a fitness level where it should be. And then you look at the community. Like, why have we got people murdering each other on the streets? Why is this even an issue? Well, you're not funding local schools. You got drug prohibition. I mean, all these things that we can affect there, but you've got two symptoms of this systemic cancer. And it's not going to go away because we haven't fixed the underlying issues. Yeah, I think that that's you hit it right on the head is, is the underlying issues. Um, I mean, unfortunately, 
in in society we use scapegoats to make us make ourselves feel better, um, but it it never addresses the issue. Those police officers, for example, in Philadelphia, you know, I study this stuff for a living, and they did exactly what they should have did. Um, unfortunately, what's not highlighted is the fact that they were they got attacked after the fact by everybody that was in the streets, including a police officer that was run over. So one of the issues that I think is significant is the breakdown of the family unit. I think the, the fact that we, we have people advocating, including organizations like BLM, that advocate for the breakdown of the family unit, um, I think that's problematic. I mean, I, I have seen the degradation uh, and, and the devaluing of the family unit um, over the last 20 years and it has transitioned our society into one that doesn't look at family values or family systems as something that's beneficial. And that's unfortunate. I mean, you take a man and you take a woman and or you take a man and a man and a woman and a woman who raise a child um, and, and, and do so in a loving environment. You are setting that child up to be a good person and a good adult. When you don't do that and you break down the family unit, it's re- really easy. Uh, there's plenty of case studies and data on this to determine the, the path uh, and the outcome for that, for that child. Uh, they're statistically more likely to end up in prison. They're statistically more likely to be a violent offender, a criminal, um, and to not be successful in life. And that transcends so many ways with so many people. And I, I just... If we could do one thing about it, it's it's take care of your own household. It's look at your own home, your own situation, and take care of your family. I mean, that's that's a good good easy start point for people to do um, if they're looking at ways to affect society. I agree 100. percent You know, you got to break the cycle and raise kind young men and women. And then, you know, when when you're in the process of doing that, like you said, walk outside your front door and look in your community and see if there's someone you can help. And if all of us do that, we truly will change the world. It sounds very hippie, but it's true. We are, you know, with a base of the pyramid, not the tip. Yeah, absolutely. Agreed on, on all fronts. All right. Well, I want to transition to Fieldcraft Survival. But just before we do, another mutual kind of contact that we have is 511. So how did you get involved with them? So 511, um, I'm good buddies with the CEO and the marketing team. And um, something that I've always done is is partnered with good companies that advocate for the right things. And 511 Tactical, you know, started, started selling pants to the FBI. And I actually, uh, you know, operating overseas, um, have been to the 511 stores overseas in war. And so they've always been kind of like a, a name and a brand and kind of a face that have offered uh, solutions, even in kind of like the worst times that I experienced. And so when I, you know, built a relationship with them, um, I started doing their always be ready academies where I'd go to their, you know, the, uh, the 511 stores, which is about 50 stores now in the continental U.S. and, and train different blocks of instruction um, in, inside of their stores. Now, this is obviously pre-COVID. Um, but that experience for me was was super cool, and I'm, I'm always I'm always uh, open to partner with companies that are thinking about people and preparedness. 
Beautiful. Yeah, I mean, they're a sponsor of the show now, and I couldn't agree more with what you said. I mean, I've seen them do nothing but advocate. They actually work with my fire department. I worked in California, so that was well over 10 years ago. And I see the way they are. I see the way they reverse engineer their products from, as you mentioned earlier, from the people on the ground, not theoretical um, you know, and they've aligned with our professions now for a long time. So I, I couldn't agree more as far as aligning with them. Yeah, the good, good company. Uh, always good things to say about uh, 511 Tactical. We actually have a sponsored product uh, that's a dual sponsor, dual branded product that um, uh, we sell to 511 um, dual branded. That's an outside the waistband tourniquet holder. Um, and, and they've been good partners the entire way. Brilliant. Well, speaking of companies, so yours is Fieldcraft Survival. Tell me about, you know, transitioning out and then and the genesis of that. Yeah, so I started Fieldcraft um, actually in a shipping container in Pakistan. Um, I was working as a contractor um, and decided I kind of wanted to do something different with my life. Um, survival for me is a genre that um, I think is kind of an opportunity for every single person, no matter what your political affiliation and walk of life is. Um, and there's not enough, there's not enough attention paid in, into preparedness and what that really is. And so I realized, you know, operating special operations and doing a whole bunch of different things that, um, the process and planning and rehearsal and paying attention to equipment were more of the indications of success and preparedness. The reason why we would be successful um, in the most dangerous circumstances. So I thought a lot of that that I learned in special operations would transition to teaching civilians and there wasn't really anything available. So in 2015, I started Philcraft Survival and then um, committed to it full time in 2016. Beautiful. I know you have all kinds of, you know, armed and unarmed uh you know, weapons classes. I would love for you to advertise some of them, but you're basically sold out the rest of this year anyway. So it's almost pointless now. <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, give give people the overview of what you do offer on the training side. Yeah, so we we train all over the United States. I mean, we we uh, we train in pistol uh, defense, carbine defense, uh, first aid and trauma, uh, survival, primitive survival. We do workshops like land navigation. Um, we do, we do it all. And, um, you know, we're, we're based now in Heber city, Utah, which is right up the Valley from Salt Lake city. And we offer free survival seminars. We, um, do the training in house. Um, but you know, ultimately we just want to offer more solutions and, and kind of your, your, your kit bag full of preparedness because preparedness is a very broad spectrum of technical skill sets. So we want to offer everything that we can. Um, I think almost as important as that is what we do with podcasts and information and offering um, kind of like uh, perspectives and mindset and situational awareness. That isn't a paid training course. That's completely free that people could uh, get tied into. Um, preparedness is, is, is a full spectrum lifestyle and we want people to live it. So. I, I recommend people get immersed in what we're offering and then uh, and check out our website, obviously. 
Absolutely. Well, I want to get to, to where people can find you in the closing questions. So I've got one more thing for you with you being obviously a, you know, background in, in special operations and then, you know, a background in, in, um, preparedness as well. What, without loading the question, what is this last seven or eight months through your lens? What, what are you seeing and what are your thoughts on it? Ooh. Uh, so for me, um, look, I, I, I think, we are going to be in uh, a very hectic year ahead of us. Look, 2020 was definitively for most people outside of uh, who, people who lived through World War II is probably going to go down as one of the most um, um, dramatic years uh, for American society. I think 2021 is going to tank that. The reason I say that is because it, it doesn't matter who gets elected. The political, the political representation doesn't matter because uh, we're not looking at uh, unifiers on either side of the spectrum. A unifier would be different. You know, uh, somebody who is bringing the country together, uh, you know, and, and uniting people would be different. But we have two people who are separatist in their own ways and, and outside of their um, – um, political parties, they, they are not going to unify. And so the inherent problem is they're going to make bold uh, political statements, not physical statements, but literal statements in how they enact policy. That policy is bound to destroy the country in several different ways. The, the most significant one is the pandemic, which is COVID-19. COVID-19, uh, for example, if uh, Biden gets elected, he will shut down our economy because he believes that the, uh, one of the inherent problems and, and, and one of the reasons why he, he's advocating uh, that you vote for him is that there's a, been a mishandling of it. Well, the mishandling of the COVID-19 has been up to local governance. So there's not been any federal mandates. So now you take a federal mandate for everybody must wear masks. No gyms in the nation would be open. Because he, he could literally do that. He's, he's advocating for that. No restaurants, no businesses. He'll continue to destroy what's already a broken uh, and disruptive uh, economy. So now you have – you already have the highest spike of resurgence of crime, poverty, unemployment, and, and psychological issues, including suicide, in our nation's history. So – then you're looking at a housing market, which I believe is going to burst in 2021, 2022. That is over. It, there's not enough inventory. It's overinflated. The the um, the interest rates right now are at their lowest, which means people are buying houses and they can't really afford them in a lot of ways. Um, and then you're looking at social economic collapse. You're looking at, at riots. You're looking at a whole bunch of violence. You're looking at a whole bunch of significant issues that are bound to unfold in 2021. Now, I, look, I, I, I study this kind of stuff for a living. I don't, I don't do this to fear monger or, or uh, get people in the mindset of preparedness. You should be doing that anyway. People are like, oh, you're just saying this because you want people to be prepared. Oh, sorry for me for, for speaking reality and, and wanting to people to be prepared. I don't care if people are more reliant and more prepared outside of Phil Craft survival. I just want them to do it because I think the idea 
that if you're self-reliant, if you're taking care of your own household and your own family and, and your protection and your survivability and your sustainment, then you are better served anyway is a good mindset to have from the get-go. So I, despite my, um, my uh, doom and gloom forecast, if you just take care of yourself and become more self-reliant and more independent, you will be okay. But the more dependence you have on everything from your first responder to the person, um, you know, the, the people who, who mow your lawn, um, the healthcare system that you depend on, then the more likely you are to be let down and potentially affected by what's going to happen in 2021. Yeah. I, I feel like ownership has been completely suppressed. So we've had a captive audience for eight months where at the beginning of this, Mother Nature said, hey, if you stop, you know, driving all the cars, <laughs> we will see a reverse in, you know, in the, the air pollution and in, in the quality of our water and in, in the, the, the nature blooming back. Um, but then, you know, the, the obesity epidemic, we have 70% of obese or overweight in our population, 70% of the population. And every time someone mentions an underlying health condition, it's shut down, it's bastardized, it's demonized. So what, what is nauseating to me is we could be eight months into maybe looking at the way we treat nature and, and changing some of those things, but certainly looking at the way that we treat our own health, that we, the, the food that we serve in our schools, the way that we farm, the, you know, the way that we treat, um, agriculture. I mean, all, all these different areas, but I feel like it's just been lost in the white noise and we're eight months dumber than we were at the beginning of the year. Yeah. I think it's all the dependence on the government that's, that's making us more flawed as a, as a society. Because, you know, the, my, my idea of a great America is using uh, our, our constitutional and given rights to allow us guidance to understand how to navigate the world around us and then be successful because we're not dependent on the government. And uh, a lot of people, um, including an entire party of people, believe that we should be more dependent because we should um, allow ourselves to, you know, be a society that's that's socialist, that's that's being assisted by all the pulled in resources of the government, except they don't understand that the government is made up of people which are inherently flawed and it's never going to work. You can't have utopia in a U.S. government that's ran by people because people are the flaw. They are the inherent issue. So when you take your uh, life into your own hands and realize that you have the control, and not only that, you, you have the freedom, um, then you could be better served by taking care of yourself. And, and I'm all about self-independence, um, and I don't need the government for anything. I, I, I wish the government would get more out of people's lives uh, and allow people to make decisions for themselves. Beautiful. I agree. Yeah. And if people understood that you forge resilience and therefore less likely to suffer an extreme reaction to COVID-19 when you get it, because it's a virus, it's everywhere, then we would be, again, eight months healthier. Absolutely. That totally agreed. Right. Well, then transitioning quickly, some closing questions so I can let you go. Um, the first one I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to what we've discussed today or something completely different. Um, I think a, a good book that I always tend to lean towards is uh, a book called Deep Survival by Lawrence Gonzalez. Um, uh, Lawrence Gonzalez lost 
uh, his father to old age, but he almost lost his father early on in the war when he was shot down as a bomber pilot in World War II and was the sole survivor. He survived um, uh, as the sole survivor went down in the bird and actually crashed it into the ground when everybody else bailed out, survived uh, a prisoner of war um, um, a stint during World War II, and then came back to live this epic and fulfilling and happy life. And Lawrence Gonzalez was super enthralled with his dad's nature and his dad's um, uh, level of happiness and, and, and surviving that event. And so Deep Survival was an in-depth study of survival of why people live and why people die. It's fascinating. Beautiful. He's actually coming on the podcast so probably in about a month. I've got to read both of his books before really? he does. Yeah. So we're getting them on. That's freaking awesome. I, I can't wait to hear that one. I'm a big fan of Lawrence Gonzalez. Beautiful. Um, He's one of my favorite writers. Really? Well, I mean, again, I, let me know. I can connect you for, for yours as well. I know you have the Field, yeah, field Survival please podcast. Do. Please do. Beautiful. All right. Well, then, same question. Uh, movie and or documentary? Um, you know, Restrepo uh, is one of my favorite uh, documentaries. I'm a big fan of Sebastian Younger. Um I, I, I think war documentaries have not been done properly, and that one uh, shows people the realities of war, but also the importance of understanding it. And so I, I definitely would say uh, Restrepo. Brilliant. Actually, he's been on a couple of times. He's coming on again, I think either December or January. But have you read his book, Tribe? I have, I have a gr great and fascinating book as well. Absolutely, very pertinent to what we do. All right, the next question is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Um, and if you haven't had Andy Stumps yet, I, I would always recommend Andy. Um, I mean, Andy is a, a super hyper intelligent person, but works with law enforcement and kind of understands. Uh, that that role and that job, and he he'd be a fascinating and and great guest. Beautiful. I've had him once, but uh, that was I think kind of early on in this podcast. So I should reach out and get him on again. All right. The next question: What do you do to decompress when you're not you know racing around the country teaching? Um. Oh man, uh, I, I like spending time with my family and friends. Um, I'm also a avid uh, outdoor lover. So anything I can do to get outdoors, um, anything I could do to to get in nature is is my go-to. Fantastic. All right. So then, where can people find the podcast and the Fieldcraft Survival site? Um. So fieldcraftsurvival.com and then Fieldcraft Survival on everything. That's that's our podcast on Spotify, on iTunes. We're kind of all over the map. Um, YouTube, all the videos, all that stuff. It's, it's simply under Phil Craft Survival. Brilliant. And then uh, your handle on Instagram? Yeah. So I have my personal is Mike.A.Glover and then Phil Craft Survival, uh, Phil Craft Survival Fit and Phil Craft Mobility. We have different lineouts of all the things that we're doing at Phil Craft. Beautiful. Well, Mike, I just want to say thank you so much. I know how busy you are. Obviously, I, I follow you on Instagram, so I see you bouncing all over the country. But, um, you know, to me, it's so valuable to get someone like you with the, the history that you have and the platform that you're on to speak on some of the things that we've talked about today. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Oh, no, thank you. It's a pleasure and an honor. Thank you so much.